It's only a kick. A jump. A block. It's only a serve. It's only a tackle. A run. It's only for the fans. After all, it's only pressure. You got this. Adidas. Joe Clemente is used to being the only driver on the road. He works for the Parks Department on Salt Spring Island in British Columbia. It's a quiet, rural community nestled between Vancouver and Victoria on a narrow strait in the Pacific Ocean. But one afternoon in March 2018, Clemente's commute took a strange turn. He spotted around 50 men and women marching down the side of his country road wearing military uniforms. I actually couldn't believe it, and I'm glad I had my camera. As he drove past the peculiar procession, he recorded a video. Military personnel on the road coming up. Check out this. Holy cow. Whoa. On Salt Spring Island. There aren't any military bases nearby, and Clemente had no idea where the group was from or what they were up to. He uploaded the video to his YouTube channel with the title, Chinese Military-Like Soldiers Train on Salt Spring Island. At first, it received a few hundred views and plenty of comments from conspiracy theorists. But a couple of years later, Clemente's video also caught the attention of Canadian police becoming part of an RCMP investigation into a horrific, brutal crime. I heard it was tied to a murder or something, which is, that, that's, that's kind of creepy. This case has to rank as one of the most atypical, strange investigation that's shrouded in mystery. It's a mystery. I'm Jeff Semple, Senior Correspondent for Global News, and this is China Rising. Episode 5, Follow the Money. Just a short drive down the road from where Clemente recorded his video in March 2018 sits a secluded seaside resort. You could easily miss it if you didn't know where to look. Around a dozen private cabins are surrounded by acres of towering evergreen trees, except for the front entranceway, which is perched on the edge of a cliff overlooking the ocean. The swanky, secluded resort is owned and managed by a company from China called Create Abundance International, also known as Golden Touch. Besides the resort on Salt Spring Island, Golden Touch and its leaders own several multi-million dollar properties in BC. Neighbors of one of those properties in Surrey, just east of Vancouver, told Global News they would often see luxury cars parked in the driveway or on the street outside. Some had vanity license plates containing the letters GT for Golden Touch. One neighbor said they once saw a tour bus arrive carrying dozens of people. The company's website and promotional materials describe it as a self-improvement organization, which promotes spiritual and financial prosperity. 
Golden Touch's promotional video on YouTube shows the company hosting various large events, including spiritual seminars. The videos show dozens of men and women packed into a conference room, listening to a presenter who's speaking on stage. Some in the audience are seen weeping, holding hands. Others are wearing blindfolds, dancing, and waving their hands in the air. The Golden Touch video's narrator, speaking in Mandarin, describes how members learn how to grow their internal energy by connecting with the natural world. But that enlightenment doesn't come cheap. According to the company's website, some of the seminars and classes cost upwards of $10,000. And on the evening of June 16, 2020, Golden Touch hosted an event at one of its mansions in Surrey. And the next day, that property became a crime scene. At around 5.30 a.m. the morning after the event, police say one of Golden Touch's employees was found nearby, lying on the ground, brutally beaten and clinging to life. She was found there and she was brought to, to hospital. Frank Jang is a sergeant with the RCMP's Integrated Homicide Investigation Team. He says the employee, a 41-year-old woman named Bo Fan, was found by a family member and taken to hospital. But doctors couldn't save her. She died later that morning. Her injuries were so extensive. In fact, people, I think there was a comment at the beginning of the investigation whether, you know, was she hit by a car? But investigators determined that Fan was brutally beaten in a targeted attack. One week after her death, police held a press conference and revealed that Fan was a Chinese citizen. She moved from China to Canada the year before, in February 2019. She lived in the Grandview Heights neighborhood in Surrey, and she worked for Golden Touch. Beyond that, police knew very little about her. They issued a plea to the public for anyone with information about Fan to contact them. Sergeant Jang says although they've received plenty of tips, her murder remains unsolved. A lot of it we've determined is simply noise, a lot of theory, a lot of conjecture from anonymous people. We need real people with real names with you know that are willing to provide their personal information and say, yes, you know, I'm so-and-so, I have information about what happened. According to its promotional material, Fan's employer, Golden Touch, first launched in China around 20 years ago and later opened dozens of centers around the world. But the company appears to have recently run into legal trouble in China, facing allegations of fraud. In 2017, a Chinese court found Golden Touch was involved in dozens of pyramid schemes across China. Chinese authorities likened the group to a cult. They said its founder and leader, Cheng Xinyue, was seen by some of her followers as a godlike figure. In 2014, Cheng and her husband moved themselves and their company to British Columbia and set up shop in Canada. Both Zhang and her husband were named in the Panama Papers in 2016. It was a giant leak of millions of financial and legal records, 
which revealed how scores of wealthy individuals maintained secretive offshore bank accounts. The Panama Papers revealed that Chung and her husband were connected to a company in the Bahamas called GT Global Corporation, which has promoted Golden Touch events. But instead of raising red flags with Canadian authorities, the couple and their company thrived in BC. By 2016, Golden Touch was hosting large events with local community groups and political leaders in the Vancouver area. Chung published a book with the help of a Vancouver publisher, which was translated into English. It's called Create Abundance, and it outlines her philosophy. But after the murder of a Golden Touch employee, Bo Fan, in 2020, the organization was suddenly cast in a negative light. Police Sergeant Jang says they found no evidence to implicate Golden Touch in her attack, but they believe her connection to the group is important. This case has to rank as one of the most atypical, strange, whatever word you want to call it. You have a 41-year-old woman who has, who's been in Canada for about a year, just over a year, uh, a foreign national from China, connected to this group with quite a, a storied past, it seems. Quite bizarre. We need information, I guess, uh, tighter, more intimate information about Bo Fan's activities uh, while she was alive, the brief time that she was here in Canada, in Surrey. Police have interviewed Fan's family, including her brother and sister-in-law. They own a house in Surrey and appear to be prominent members of Golden Touch. Global News made numerous attempts to contact Fan's brother and other members of the group with no response. But social media posts appear to show Fan's brother leading a boot camp-style training program on Salt Spring Island. He's shown directing dozens of men and women wearing military uniforms, just like the group Joe Clemente caught on video marching down the road back in 2018. Golden Touch's Canadian website, which has now been taken down, contained photos of the group's activities. They appear to include martial arts and weapons training, using axes, batons, and even firearms. Members' social media posts show them training and posing with numerous guns, including models that are restricted and, if functional, even prohibited in Canada. It is not acceptable in Canada in 2021 for groups to organize themselves in camouflage outfits with weapons prohibited or not trying to operate in secret. That's Richard Fadden. He used to be Canada's spy chief, the former director of CSIS, the Canadian Security Intelligence Service. And he was also the national security advisor to the Prime Minister of Canada from 2015 to 2016. I asked Fadden what he made of Golden Touch and its activities in BC. Do I think that they're being used to you know, overthrow the Canadian state or BC? No, I do not. But it is simply not helpful to have an organized group functioning under the radar with some connections to a foreign state operating in Canada in 2021. The group's leaders include former Chinese state employees and members of the Chinese Communist Party, though the CCP has around 95 million members around the world, so it's not exactly unusual. Besides their apparent access to restricted and prohibited weapons, Fadden says what stands out is the secretive group's tremendous financial resources. 
they do appear to have a fair bit of money. So I would say if I were in the RCMP or CSIS today, I would really pay attention to them because it is amazing what you can do if you have a relatively unlimited amount of money. This episode is supported by FX's Clipped, the scandalous story of the 2014 Clippers owner's racist remarks captured on tape and heard around the world. The series charts the tape's impact on a dysfunctional basketball organization striving to win against their reputation as the most cursed team in the league. Starring Lawrence Fishburne, Jackie Weaver, Cleopatra Coleman, and Ed O'Neill. FX's Clipped. Streaming June 4th, only on Hulu. Police sources told Global News the RCMP is investigating the group's financial activities and whether its members may have sourced their guns from Chinese organized crime suspects in Vancouver. BC is considered by organized crime experts around the world to be a hotbed of criminal gangs and money launderers with connections to China. Global News has uncovered how a powerful Chinese criminal network is using casinos and real estate in British Columbia to launder billions of dollars in drug money and create a fentanyl supply line to Canada. In 2017, an Australian expert in transnational financial crime in Sydney named John Langdale was giving a presentation to Australian police, and he warned about a new method of criminal enterprise that he'd been tracking through his research, and which he dubbed the Vancouver model. It attracted a fair bit of attention, uh, given the problems in Vancouver and ongoing problems. Because I was writing a paper on Chinese transnational crime in different regions, all of a sudden Vancouver came up as as a, a more sophisticated, it was a different model from the Europeans and from what Asia-Pacific region was seeing. In basic terms, the Vancouver model works like this. Drug dealers from China secretly ship their drugs, including the main ingredient in fentanyl, to Vancouver. Gangsters then sell those drugs across Canada, generating billions of dollars in illegal profits. But then the Chinese gangs have a problem. They were selling the illegal drugs in Canada and getting Canadian dollars. And the, the, the problem then is, how do you get rid of those Canadian dollars? So the gangs came up with a creative solution. China only allows its citizens to transfer $50,000 out of the country every year. That transfer limit has led to the creation of a vast underground banking network, which is used by some wealthy Chinese to move their money out of the country. Well, the drug dealers from China launched their own underground banking system for wealthy customers looking to transfer their Chinese currency into Canadian dollars. They recognized that there were Chinese wanting to come to uh, Vancouver to gamble, high rollers, and there were also uh, wealthy Chinese wanting to put money into um, Vancouver real estate and high-end automobiles and whatever. Wealthy Chinese would transfer their money in Chinese currency to an account in China. And in return, they were handed bags of Canadian cash, sometimes in a parking lot somewhere in the Vancouver area, which they then used to gamble at local casinos and to buy real estate. In doing so, these wealthy Chinese gamblers and real estate investors, whether they knew it or not, were effectively laundering the gang's drug money for them. 
making it appear as though it came from a legitimate source. Essentially, the, the, if you like, the genius of the, the money launderers was to match up the supply of you know, dirty dollars from the sale of the drugs with the demand for Canadian dollars from the, the high rollers and the gamblers and for the people wanting to put money into Canadian real estate. To understand why Vancouver became the destination of choice for an organized Asian transnational criminal network that has wreaked havoc in Canada, we need to quickly go back in time to 1992. Hello? Hi, is that Sandy? It is, yeah. In the late 1980s and early 90s, Sandy Boucher was a chief inspector with the Royal Police in Hong Kong. Back then, Hong Kong was still a British colony, and Boucher was a high-profile, organized crime-buster. In 1992, he had his sights set on a prized target. Li Chaoping, nicknamed the Ice Queen, allegedly led the world's largest crystal methamphetamine syndicate. Boucher and his team were closing in and raided her Hong Kong home, only to discover she'd taken off and boarded a plane to Canada. And he said, she's landed. And I said, okay, great. So what have you got? And he said, no, no, you don't understand me. She's landed. I said, yeah, of course she's landed. She was on an airplane. He said, no, she's a landed immigrant. She's, she's landed. I said, well, that can't be right. She's got a criminal record. Lee, one of the world's most notorious accused drug traffickers, was a landed immigrant allowed to settle in Canada through the country's entrepreneur immigration scheme. It opens the door to wealthy migrants who plan to start a business in Canada. Lee promised to spend $170,000 to build a fast-food chicken restaurant in LaRange, Saskatchewan. But perhaps unsurprisingly, she never did. Instead, she bought a luxury home in Vancouver, enrolled her two children in local schools, and eventually took off again. She was last seen in Thailand in 1992. So I'm afraid Canada was the bad apple in all of that. Organized crime pushes, and as soon as they find softness, they just, they just push more. Lee has never been captured. In the years that followed, Boucher says history repeated itself. If Boucher learned that a suspected drug trafficker was flying to another country, he would routinely phone that country's police representative, its liaison officer in Hong Kong, to alert them. And over the years, that led to numerous arrests and the seizure of illegal drugs at airports from Australia and Thailand to the UK and the Netherlands, but not in Canada. When we were trying to get people to do something about them, there was no point in going through the liaison officers because it would never happen. That you know, the, the plane would, would, would arrive and the passengers would go and nothing would have happened. In 1997, as the British were preparing to hand over control of Hong Kong to China, the Chinese government was fiercely cracking down on organized crime groups. Many known criminals in Hong Kong were looking to set up shop elsewhere. Boucher said that Canada quickly became a popular destination. There was an enormous amount of fear generally in the population that, 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 you know, remembering that Hong Kong was significantly built on people who escaped from China one way or another, you could understand that they weren't too keen on what they thought was going to happen next. So it wasn't just criminals leaving, but in, in the midst of all of that, we would regularly come across cases where 
we would see significant people. I mean, at the level of, 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 of cases that we were doing was the top level heroin syndicates in the world of Asian Golden Triangle heroin. So it's not like suddenly there's a whole group of them all applied together, but it was, it was well known that people were leaving Canada, leaving Hong Kong for Canada in general. And we just saw this regular drumbeat of significant crime figures who were able to get in there. There was clearly something going on. That, why and how were they all just suddenly moving to Canada and how are they getting in? Boucher says the situation improved slightly after the RCMP hired a new liaison officer in Hong Kong, a veteran investigator named Gary Clement. Growing up, Gary Clement's bedroom wall was covered with RCMP postcards. He always wanted to be a top cop. Clement joined the force in the 1970s in the Fraser Valley, east of Vancouver, and was quickly promoted to the undercover drug unit. His undercover work, which led to the arrests of a long list of major drug dealers, became legendary among his peers. Before he was posted to Hong Kong in the early 1990s, the RCMP asked Clement to look into its liaison office in Hong Kong, which had developed a bad reputation. It, you know, it became quite apparent that it was not very operational and it wasn't being as effective as it should based on the fact that it was Hong Kong was a transshipment point for uh, heroin coming out of Asia and, and going into North America. So um, after having done the study and uh, I was asked if I would go over and try and operationalize the post. In other words, Clement was assigned to the RCMP's office in Hong Kong to shake things up, which he certainly did. He worked closely with the Hong Kong police and its units targeting the triads, China's organized crime groups. And Clement also got to know a longtime Canadian foreign affairs officer named Brian McAdam, who worked at the Canadian Commission. The commission was basically Canada's embassy in Hong Kong, and it handled immigration applications for those who wanted to move to Canada. And he had brought it to my attention shortly after I got there that the embassy or the, the, a lot of the Canada post officers and that were not being very effective in as much as we were allowing a lot of uh, what he deemed and, and I was able to establish of uh, triad members to emigrate to Canada and were being allowed in. And, and what was quite interesting about it was half the time, um, being a member of a triad society, even if they had been convicted in Hong Kong, was not a prohibitive ground in Canada because we didn't have a like offense. So I guess I, that for me was a crusade because I, I recognized the legislation had to be changed. Clement says suspected triad organized crime members would visit the Canadian Commission and take the staff out on yacht cruises or to the racetrack and even provided them cash to gamble with. And it was free money to go gambling. Well, I had a real problem with it. Brian McAdam, I know, had a real problem with it. Um, it definitely, in my mind, it didn't uh, display objectivity on the part of uh, anybody in the Canadian mission. But this was sort of the way it was. I wrote a paper at that time that uh, it was no doubt in my mind that Vancouver or British Columbia would displace Hong Kong as far as being a transshipment point for both organized crime activity out of China, and actually uh, a lot of uh, uh, Hong Kong-based organized criminals. 
In the 25 years since Clement's warnings fell mostly on deaf ears, organized criminal activity has made BC an internationally recognized hotspot for money laundering. I think everything that I I suggested would happen has come, but I think it's gone. It's far greater than I anticipated. You guessed it, the aforementioned Vancouver model and its impact has reached far beyond the criminal underworld. The drug trade has fueled an opioid overdose crisis in Canada, which saw 17 Canadians killed every day last year. The drug epidemic in BC actually caused the average life expectancy in the province to drop a few years ago for the first time in decades. And the laundering of that drug money is also driving up housing prices. An expert panel estimated that $5 billion in dirty money was laundered through BC's housing market in 2018, increasing average home prices by at least 5%. In June of this year, the average price of a detached home in Vancouver was $1.8 million. We couldn't get into the city, and like so many people, uh, we couldn't understand why. That is, we couldn't put down the real roots of home ownership. Even a condo was out of reach. That's Sam Cooper. He's a colleague at Global News, an investigative journalist now based in Ottawa. But Cooper began his journalism career in Vancouver. He and his wife met in Japan and moved to BC in 2004, planning to start a family. And like a lot of newcomers to the city, They were stunned by what they saw, both in the real estate market and on Vancouver's downtown east side, one of the poorest postal codes in Canada, with a high rate of homelessness, crime, and drug abuse. I went straight into journalism school, and I automatically, as soon as I landed in school, I felt I have license to now look at this downtown east side and just the incredible drug overdose death situation. I couldn't understand it in Canada. Through his research and reporting, first as a student journalist and then as a local newspaper reporter, Cooper discovered how the housing market and the drug overdose crisis shared a connection to organized crime. I did start to discover that there were You know, mysterious tycoons were becoming the biggest real estate investors in the city. I later found out that had been the case, of course, since the late 1980s and and early 1990s. And eventually I started doing stories about how corruption in mainland China, capital flight fit into this. And uh, ultimately, I stumbled onto the casino money laundering story. Cooper just published a book which outlines in vivid detail the critical role that BC's casinos have allegedly played in the laundering of drug money. Surveillance videos from one BC casino showed Chinese gamblers arriving night after night carrying hockey bags stuffed with cash, rolled up $20 bills totaling hundreds of thousands of dollars, which were then exchanged for gambling chips. No questions asked. The casino was the final and most important piece because you could see, you could literally see the money laundering occurring in front of your eyes. That is these bags of cash of liter- up to $1.2 million in one single large hockey sack brought into the casino is the largest ever transaction, but 500000 in $20 bills was very common. 
And so I put it all together uh, in my reporting and in this book, how underground banking, casinos, capital flight, geopolitics really explained a lot of what was going on in Vancouver. Cooper's stories and others proved so shocking that in 2019, BC's government appointed a provincial Supreme Court judge, Austin Cullen, to launch an inquiry into money laundering in the province. The Cullen Commission, as it's known, just wrapped up in April 2021, after hearing testimony from around 200 witnesses, including politicians, police officers, and gambling officials. The inquiry also relied on Cooper's investigative stories and reporting. The title of his book is Willful Blindness. Why did you why did you choose that? The willful blindness is a essentially a legal term and Basically, in my understanding, I, I wanted to go to law school, but didn't do it. But I think I can get this right. It means that people, either regulators, politicians, people with some regulatory authority, know that something is occurring. They have a duty to stop it. But for various reasons, quite often could be greed or power, they turn a blind eye and let it continue. And so willful blindness didn't just come out of my reading of, of legal texts. It, it came from actual documents that I obtained about BC Lottery Corporation investigations, where it was written, we should be concerned that the Lottery Corporation, this is the, the government agency that runs these casinos, will be accused of willful blindness for turning a blind eye to this drug money laundering. It's egregious. And beyond that, uh, police uh, police have warned the government that this is occurring. It, the, the drug cash transactions have not been stopped, and there are people inside BC casinos that are suspected to be working directly with organized crime. Other documents said organized crime has made efforts to take over BC casinos. This is outright said. Greed for revenue in BC uh, casinos and really throughout the economy in some ways, especially real estate, turned a blind eye to this known drug money laundering, and the impacts are, are just horrific. The Cullen Commission will issue its findings in December. One open question in all of this remains. How does the Chinese government, the Communist Party, fit into the equation? In the late 1990s, a joint RCMP-CSIS intelligence report called Project Sidewinder, concluded that the Chinese government and Asian criminal gangs were in fact working together in drug smuggling, nuclear espionage, and other criminal activities that threatened Canadian security. But at the time, that report was quietly shelved until it was eventually leaked to the Globe and Mail newspaper in 2000 sparking allegations that Ottawa tried to bury the report so as not to antagonize China. At the time, the Liberal government was trying to encourage more trade deals between the two countries. Some academic and media reports have claimed that Beijing occasionally employs triad bosses to work towards shared goals and crack down on dissent in foreign countries while others condemn those claims as nothing more than unsubstantiated conspiracy theory. And they point to Chinese President Xi Jinping's massive crackdown on criminal gangs and corruption, which was launched in 2018. For his part, 
Richard Fadden, the former CSIS director whom we met earlier in this episode, believes that little happens in Xi Jinping's China without Beijing's blessing. Is organized crime in China controlled entirely by the Communist Party? I would guess not. But I dare say that very little activity that takes place in China that affects their strategic interests, not you know their everyday interests, would be allowed to function uh, at all. So I suspect there's at least some sort of connection between the Chinese state and these organizations. Or if there isn't a connection, there's a clear understanding of how far they can go or not go in terms of pursuing their more mercenary interests. And for that reason, he and other experts are wary of any secretive organization with access to extreme wealth and weapons. Groups like Golden Touch. The Chinese government cracked down on the organization a few years ago amid allegations of fraud, but it was nonetheless allowed to resume its activities and move its headquarters to Canada where it operated under the radar of Canadian authorities for years until one of its employees was brutally murdered. Now, more than one year since the death of Bo Fan in June 2020, police say the trail has gone cold. RCMP Sergeant Frank Jang says there are no updates, no solid leads, and little information from members of Golden Touch. We haven't spoken to a lot of people associated to this group. Again, going back to the conjecture and theories and, you know, the information coming into our information line, the anonymous ones that we can't even follow back on. Uh, as you can tell, you, you can probably sense the frustration in my voice. We, we need people to tell us who they are, how they know what they know, and if it is in fact true, um, you know, if they believe that there are those in this group uh, that are somehow responsible for both fans' murder, well, we need, you need to reach out to us or at least provide a contact number so that we can reach, out, reach back to you. Right now, we don't have a lot because we haven't spoken to a lot. And really, uh, there are so many parts of this investigation that is still shrouded in mystery. And we're hoping that there is even, you know, we just need one person that can help us peel back some of that mystery for us. On February 9th, 2021, the director of CSIS, Canada's spy agency, issued a rare public warning about a covert campaign by the Chinese government in Canada. These activities are different from the norms of diplomatic activity because they cross the line by attempting to undermine our democratic processes and threaten our citizens in a covert and clandestine manner. We'll investigate claims that Beijing is quietly applying pressure on Canadians and their political leaders. And then my father also told me that the uh, National Security Guard, the state agents, came to me and told him that if I don't stop speaking about politics or human rights related things, then my family would be persecuted like in the Cultural Revolution. I think over the course of the last 10 or 15 years, it's become a serious problem. I think initially they tried to operate largely uh, within the Chinese-Canadian community. I think they've now broadened out to, to deal with anybody they possibly can. I also think they've become more confident. So they will use whatever leverage they have on you to pressure you to do what they want you to do. That's next time on China Rising. This podcast is written and produced by me, Jeff Semple. 
with producer Dila Velezquez. Audio editing and sound design is by Rob Johnston. Editing assistance from Stephanie D'Souza. You can help me share this podcast by telling a friend. And don't forget to rate and review China Rising on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. You can find me on Twitter at JeffSempleGN. And you can email me at jeff.semple at globalnews.ca. Thanks for listening. And please join me next time on China Rising.